Staff Sergeant Jacob DeShazer volunteered to be part of Jimmy Doolittle's plan to bomb Japan shortly after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a bombardier on the last B-25 to take off from the U.S. Hornet a few months later. Because the B-25s could not carry enough fuel to return to the ship, they were to fly on to China and find safe haven there in non-occupied China. However, the Shazer's plane ran out of fuel before reaching its destination, and the crew had to parachute into a part of China that was occupied by the Japanese. The Shazer consequently spent 40 months as a prisoner of war, and incredibly, he spent 36 of those months in solitary confinement. He was severely beaten, badly malnourished, and, well, the only one of his crew, I think, to survive. In fact, three of the crew members on his plane were executed, another died of starvation. Jacob DeShazer had every reason to hate his Japanese tormentors. But eventually, he persuaded a guard to loan him a copy of the Bible. He was loaned a copy. He had it for three weeks. He devoured it, and it led to his conversion. Afterwards, his attitude changed. He began to treat his captors with respect, and in return, his captors began to treat him better. When the war ended, the Shazza returned to America, but he attended Bible college and went back, not to China, but to Japan. He went back to Japan as a missionary in 1948, and he served the Lord there for about 30 years. This is Dr. Jay Wagoner, and you're listening to the Shepherd's Table podcast. Welcome. If you'd like more information about Shepherd Table's ministries, you can access it at shepherdstable.net. Well, Jacob DeShazer is an incredible example of someone who was able to forgive his enemies and preach the word of God to them. Jonah, on the other hand, he was not able to do the same. This is part two of our five podcast series on the book of Jonah. And uh, as we learned previously, Jonah didn't like the Assyrians. He hated the the Assyrians. They were the sworn enemies and tormentors of Israel. And God told Jonah he wanted him to go and preach in Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. But Jonah didn't do that. He wasn't able to deal with the possibility that those Assyrians might repent and turn to God. So attempting to escape responsibility, Jonah fled Israel. He went to Joppa, got on a Phoenician ship, and headed toward Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was a Phoenician port in what is modern-day Spain, and it was basically the end of the known world in that Mediterranean area. And his attempt to flee did not work, obviously. As we learned last week in verse 4, the Bible says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. So God sent a storm and easily found Jonah in that ship as he was attempting to escape. Now, last week we talked about the realities of disobedience. The fact that uh, disobedience does not uh, allow us any excuse, and our disobedience... uh, does not allow us any way to escape God's demands. This week, we want to talk about the results. Look at the results of disobedience. Now, 
God sent that storm to turn Jonah around. And it was in the circumstances of the storm that Jonah reaped the results of his disobedience. Well, storms such as Jonah experienced are never pleasant, and they can be a very traumatic experience as it was for him. Our storms may not be literal ones, but when we disobey God, we can expect God to send some unpleasant circumstances to turn us around. But that's something we should not desire to find out. Trust me, you don't want to go down that route. Jonah would say the same thing. Disobedience is never worth the cost. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter 1 at verse 4. And the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners, the sailors, the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. They were pagan, polytheistic people, the Phoenicians. Uh, They cried out, everyone to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Well, the sailors knew they were in for trouble. They were experienced, and this was a storm like no other. And they were throwing out their cargo, which was their livelihood, uh, to try to just survive. But where's Jonah? Interestingly enough, he's asleep down somewhere in the hold of the ship. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is why was Jonah asleep? Well, my my understanding of what we find here, I think it goes a little deeper than he just was sleeping because he was tired, and he probably was tired and worn out, probably hurried from his hometown uh, in Bath Heifer down to Joppa to flee from the presence of God. But I believe Jonah was detached emotionally and mentally. He was detached from reality at this point. The fact that he thought he could even flee from the presence of God, and as we talked about last time, he knew God was omnipresent. But he wanted to go somewhere where God uh, was probably not going to uh, be able to reach him in his mind because there was no prop, be no prophets there, no other believers in the God of Israel and so forth. So he headed as far away as he could go. And he's just now kind of detached from reality. In fact, when we get to this position, uh, when we when we disobey God, we have no excuse, but we're going to do it anyway. We become detached from reality because you can't escape God's demands and God's uh, purpose and plans for your life. So detachment is kind of a something that numbs us to our disobedience. And we see the first thing here. Uh, is that he was asleep. Well, it's a form of withdrawal, I think. Especially he was able to sleep in that storm. Uh, It was a self-induced state of mind. Uh, He was withdrawn. He was down on the ship, hiding out in the dark by himself. He was apathetic, didn't care what happened. The only thing he cared about was stepping off that boat in Tarshish. He was in a state of denial that uh, he could even do this. And it's quite possibly he was in a state of depression because he was leaving his home he was leaving everything he knew. He may have spent his last dollar on the fair. Uh, and he was going to a place he'd never been. And uh, he was angry, angry at the Syrians and angry at God. And all those things can, can lead to depression. So he was detached from reality. He was in a self-induced, mind-numbing state. Well, when you find yourself in such a state, and I hope you do not, you need to wake up. But if you don't wake up, On your own, God has ways of waking us up. 
Uh, the first way that God used to wake Jonah up was by his direct intervention. He sent the storm. And the storm did a very good job of rousing everybody in the boat, boat but Jonah. But then God turned around and used those in the boat to do the rest. In verse 6 it says, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Again, the polytheistic Phoenician ideal, everybody had their own God, and that's what he's thinking. But but this Phoenician captain realizes the gods they're praying to isn't doing any good. So he's hoping maybe Jonah's God will. Verse 7, not only did uh, God send the storm to find Jonah, not only did God send the captain into the bottom of the boat for whatever reason he went down or we don't know, not only did God send the captain down there to find him and wake him up, but then God causes the lot that the, the lot that the sailors cast to fall on Jonah. Verse seven, and they said to one another, "Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us." So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, "Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us." What is your occupation? Well, basically, they're saying, you know, what are you doing here? What are you, what are you attempting to do? What are you, what are you at, uh, trying to do right now in your life that's led to this? And then they continue the questions. And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So the lot falls on Jonah, just like the captain found him and the fish and, and the storm found him. And eventually, if you drop down to verse 17, as we all know, the fish is going to find him. Uh, after he was thrown into the sea. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, chapter 1 and verse 17. So the first result of disobedience is detachment. Detachment mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, you're just in a mind-numb state, and that's where we find Jonah. But there's a second result, and this is a really important one. Detachment from reality, result one. Discipline from God is result number two. Now, whereas detachment numbs us, discipline hurts us. Discipline makes us very uncomfortable, uh, to say the least, and goes much further than that. So let's talk about the effects of discipline. Okay, let's go all the way back to last week, verse three. It says, when Jonah went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. Now, why would that? Why would the Bible include such a trivial thing here? Well, probably because uh, it was his last dollar, as we've, we've noticed before, or at least he was maybe hoping to put a roadblock in God's uh, plans by not having the fare to come back. Anyway, we, we're we're told that. But Jonah had plans, and his plans, according to verse 3, was to go to Tarshish. Well, God disrupts his plans in verse 4 when he sent the wind. Now the ship's not going to make it. The ship's going to sink if, if something doesn't happen. Of course, we know that's uh, Jonah being cast into the sea, but we haven't gotten there yet. So the effects of discipline are many. One is disrupted plans. And then there's financial losses. Well, Jonah's fare would be lost. He's paid a fare to go to Tarsh. He's not going to get there. Uh, the cargo, we mentioned a moment ago, the livelihood of the Phoenicians is about to be lost. Not their fault, but there's always financial losses. Not always, but a lot of times financial losses involved in God's discipline. Then there's guilt and mental anguish. 
I remember the sailor's questions in verse 8. You know, who are you? What are you doing? And, you know, where are you from? So what does Jonah say in verse 9? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. That was the, the general name the Gentiles referred to, uh, the way the Gentiles referred to the Jewish people, people of Israel. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the Lord God, the only God, Yahweh, as he makes very clear when he says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, now that got the sailors' attention. The God that Jonah worships, uh, he made to see. They never thought about their gods ever doing such a thing. He made to see in the dry land. Verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah here now begins to enter into this, in this area where he's really feeling guilty and he confesses his sin to these Gentiles, by the way, he was called to go preach to the Gentiles at Nineveh. So he ends up having to confess his sins to the Phoenician Gentiles. Uh, God really knows how to, to do what he needs to do when he brings us discipline. And so he tells them that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, uh, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. So he's feeling the guilt, the guilt that God's produced through the storm and the circumstances. And he's willing to admit it to them, but amazingly, he doesn't confess it to God at this point, and he doesn't pray to God at this point. We, don't, we won't get to that until he's in the fish, or in the sea at least, in the next chapter. So God convicts us. He brings his mental anguish, his guilt uh, upon us. In addition to everything else, begin to, to open our eyes. And when that happens, we, we have to open our eyes to who we are. Jonah knows exactly who he, who he is and who he worships, where he came from. Uh, he admits what he has done and he admits what he deserves. So uh, God has to open our eyes to whom we are, to what we have done and what we deserve when he finds us uh, in, in need of discipline. The last aspect of discipline may be health problems or even the potential loss of life. Uh, this is a principle in the New Testament, and it's very extreme. God has great amount of patience with us. He doesn't just go around striking uh, disobedient people down. But if they continue on and on and on and on, and they're believers, he might decide to shorten their life and uh, because they're not doing any good here to glorify him. But we see Jonah here. To be cast in the sea, that's a death sentence. He's not, he's not going to survive out there in that storm in those waves. He's going to drown. He knows that. Uh, to give him credit, at least for, again, God uses him what? To care about the Gentiles <laughs> on this boat. When he didn't care about the Gentiles in Nineveh, if he'd, have, if he'd have learned that lesson sooner, he wouldn't be here. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord. Now they're crying out to Jonah's God, the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. Now, here's the here's the Phoenicians playing to God, and there's no evidence that Jonah has yet. Amazing. Verse 6, verse, uh, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. <laughs> well, they, they're more obedient to God in their rudimentary state of faith, whatever it was, uh, or at least in their concepts, than Jonah was at this point. And verse 17 is where we want to go as this chapter ends. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now the fish here was an instrument, a final instrument of God's discipline in the life of Jonah. It was also the way God saved his life. It hadn't, fish hadn't swallowed him, he to drown. So he's both an instrument of discipline and, and uh, uh, a means of God's grace uh, available to Jonah and, and salvation from, the, from his death sentence. Now, the question arises at this point, well, what was it that swallowed Jonah? Now, those that want to disbelieve the story, and by the way, Jesus confirmed the story in Matthew chapter 12, so if it's good enough for Jesus, then I think uh, we probably ought to believe the story too. But there are those that say, well, a whale could not have swallowed Jonah. Whales do not have a big enough throat. Let's consider that for a minute. What, what was it that swallowed Jonah? Well, first of all, the Greek word in Matthew twelve forty that Jesus uses is not the word whale. In the Greek, it's just a word for a sea creature. It's a general word. And, and the Hebrew word used right here and translated great fish in the New King James Version, which I'm using, is not whale either. There were specific words for whale. This is not it, neither here nor in Matthew 12, 40. Both are general words. It could just simply translate uh, a creature from the sea. That's all we know. So I'm going to use the word fish at this point. So what, what kind of fish swallowed Jonah? Well, here are the possibilities. Could have been a sperm whale that uh, swallowed him, but that would take a, a real miracle of God because uh, when you think sperm whale, think of Moby Dick. Okay, that was a sperm whale in that uh, in that novel, and uh, the sperm whale does have a large enough throat to swallow a man. The problem is he also has many many sharp teeth, and he and sperm whales kill their prey before swallowing them. So. Uh, probably not likely it was a sperm whale then. Uh, plus, if he would have been swallowed into the stomach of a sperm whale, he probably would not in any way been able to breathe unless God uh, facilitated some sort of miracle. Okay, so let's rule out the sperm whale. Let's talk about the humpback whale. Now, humpback whales have been known to swallow men, but only for a very brief time. In fact, there was a man uh, back in 2021 who was swallowed by a diver that was swallowed by a humpback whale off the coast of Massachusetts. You can uh, Google that and look it up. It's interesting. But he was only in there about in the mouth of the whale about 30 seconds. Now, humpback whales do not have sharp teeth. They do not kill their prey. But they eat very small uh, animals, very small uh, food sources, and and uh, they don't have to kill their prey. So they don't have teeth. Uh, and they have a very narrow throat. So they can't swallow a man all the way down. So anybody that's been found to have been <clears throat> taken into the mouth of a humpback whale, that whale will spit them out in just a few seconds. So probably not a sperm whale, probably not a humpback whale. Well, it could have been a, an extinct, a now extinct sea creature. There was a particular shark in the Mediterranean Sea that is now extinct. It was uh, referred to as a sea dog. And there are accounts in history of sea dogs swallowing men and even horses. They were that big and and again, though, they had sharp teeth, they killed their prey, they swallowed it down, them down into a stomach. So 
probably not that either. That leads me to what I think is one intriguing possibility, and that is what's called a whale shark. This particular animal is a shark, but it's called a whale shark. It's not a whale. A whale shark could have ingested Jonah. Whale sharks range from 18 to 33 feet in length. They weigh over 20 tons. Uh, you can think of the size of a school bus. They inhabit tropical waters, but their range includes the coast of Israel. Their mouths are five feet wide and their throats are large. But they do not have sharp teeth. They do not kill their prey. In fact, they feed on very small uh, sources. Uh, plankton is a main source. Very small things like fish eggs and shrimp. Uh, they take a large amount of these, a large gulp of these uh, small uh, items of food into their mouth. And then they have a filter system in their mouth throat area that filters the food from the water. And then the water is ejected out the gills. And then eventually they swallow the small, but small, they're small, but there's much of them. You know, plankton will be huge amounts of plankton, but the plankton's small. So they, they can swallow that and they do. Well, a whale shark could well have taken Jonah into its mouth, and Jonah could easily have become caught on the filter system there in the head-mouth area. By the way, the word in verse 17, which says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, that word belly in the Hebrew just means inside, so it doesn't necessarily mean in the stomach. So he could have been caught up in the filter system in the, the head area of the whale shark, and not been swallowed down into his stomach where it would have been impossible for him to breathe and so on. Now, the question is, how could Jonah breathe even in the whale shark's mouth? Well, whale sharks invert themselves uh, and come up to the surface of the water in a vertical uh, position. And they gulp down plankton, which rises to the surface of the water at night. They gulp down water, the plankton, the fish eggs, whatever it is, and because they break the surface of the water, they gulp down air. Now, the water is ejected through the gills. The food is filtered out. Now, think of all this happening while uh, Jonah is caught in there. But he would have an air source as these whale sharks come to the surface, break the surface, uh, ingest air along with the food and water. It would have been very irregular and it had been very difficult, but it's quite possible uh, that Jonah could have breathed and stayed there for three days. I'm just giving you this as a possibility because we don't have to know. Jesus said Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. Uh, the book of Jonah says it. We believe it. Uh, God is all-powerful. He could do it in many ways. I'm just simply throwing out to you that those who want to, to say the Bible's incorrect because it's impossible, that, that it's not impossible, whatever means that God used. But it was discipline. You see, inside the fish, it was dark. It was cold. He was confined. He would not have been able to eat. He would have been in a weakened state. His breathing would have been erratic and, and difficult and off and on. He was probably in and out of consciousness. He was probably on the verge of hypothermia. So a uh, very harrowing experience. And that's where we're going to stop. Uh, when we get into verse 2, we'll talk about his being spit out by the whale. But let's stop and talk about the purpose of discipline here. You see, the purpose of discipline is not to punish. The purpose of discipline is to correct us. God wasn't trying to punish Jonah. 
He was trying to get his attention so he repent from his disobedience. He was trying to correct Jonah. Now you can go back to the book of Hebrews. Excuse me. It's also in the book of Hebrews, but it, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 quotes Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening, which means discipline, the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father of the son in whom he delights. So God doesn't punish us for sin because our sin was punished when Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross of Calvary. Romans uh, 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned. We're not punished for sin. But God will discipline us to correct us. And that's what he was doing in the life of Jonah. Sometimes uh, and Christians are going through discipline and it's very clear to them. And God makes it very, very plain to them as he did to Jonah. Uh, but there's lots of times over the years that I've had Christians come to me, other, other believers that are experiencing problems in their life, and they'll say to me, Pastor, uh, why am I going through this? What have I done? What have I done to deserve this? Well, in the book of James in the New Testament, we're told that God will test us. And uh, you can be perfectly uh, in fellowship with God and obedient to God, and God will still allow some problems to come into your life because he wants to, to make us into the image of Christ. So if you read James 1, 2 to 4, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith of your faith produces patience. That means perseverance. But let patience or perseverance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect here used in the sense of mature. So God brings us to maturity in Christ, not only from his word and from uh you know, our fellowship with other believers and lots of other things, prayer and so on, but he also uses problems and trials. So we learn to trust him and persevere, and that brings us to maturity. So I always tell people to come with that question, you know, uh, I'll say this to them. I'll say, uh, well, are you aware of any sin in your life that you've not confessed? And if they say no, which they oftentimes do, I'll say, well, then it's testing. It's not discipline. But uh, if it's discipline, God through the Spirit or some other means is going to get your attention, and you're going to understand uh, that you are out of fellowship with God and need correction. I hope that you need not correction today. If you do, don't be detached. Don't numb your mind. Don't withdraw from God and everybody else. Admit your sin, confess your sin, and come back to God. If you're going through those trials, do what James says. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because God will use that for good spiritually. God cares more about our character, cares more about our spirituality, and does our comfort. Well, God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to the Shepherd's Table podcast. This is Dr. Wagoner, and I hope that you'll tune in again next time.